It's May 19, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Welcome to the podcast. This week we're going to discuss some odd associations, some consequences of therapies we use, and why not repeat some warnings that you've heard before but probably need to hear again. We all need to be told what not to do, don't we? It really begins with the oral surveillance study. We've had lots of discussion, teaching, you know, whatnot. Yet I'm surprised that the number of people who um, aren't quite so solid with that study and why we're dealing with the warnings that we have with jack inhibitors. Um, and this week we posted a, a new sub-analysis of, of the original 1133 study, the oral surveillance study, as you know, a post-marketing commitment with tofacitinib being given to high-risk RA patients where they were treated either with uh, the tofacitinib or with a comparator TNF inhibitor. So this particular sub-analysis showed that looking at the population that was enrolled, high risk, one cardiovascular risk factor over the age of 50, um, having failed other therapies, versus the at-risk population, they define uh, that the at-risk population are the ones you need to worry about. And that is defined as patients over age 65 who were ever smokers, who um, those two um, factors, along with a cardiovascular risk uh, in the past um, is what led to all the excess adverse events, and that means malignancies, major adverse cardi- cardiac events, MIs, venous thromboembolic events, and all cause mortality, all because of that particular profile, that subset of the nearly 5,000 patients included in that study. So if you looked at that, that led to higher um event rates compared to TNF numbers with hazard ratios ranging from 1.4 to 5.2 higher. So that's either five-fold higher or 40% higher. I mean, it's, it's significant. So over age 65, ever smokers, and then a cardiovascular risk, boom. Those are the people you don't give a TNF inhibitor to um, and start out somewhere else or avoid you know, those agents and use one of the other available options. I saw this report and I thought I knew everything about TNF inhibitors, did a lot of the studies on them going back to 1995. Um, This particular uh, literature review identified um, TNF inhibitors being used to treat acne. What? It's from the JAMA Dermatology. It's a literature review that found 47 cases of refractory acne that was treated with TNF inhibitors. And when I say refractory, failed everything, you know, antibiotics, topical therapies, you name it, um, and uh, the retinoids, blah, blah, blah. And they were treated with TNF inhibitors and all the ones that are out there uh, in over the last several years, the ones that you use. And they showed that in that situation, there was some benefit. A total clearing of acne only seen in 40%, but some benefit, partial improvement in 94% and only 6% having adverse events. Heck, why not use TNF inhibitors for, for acne is what I would say. But wait, the report is counterbalanced by 17 case reports 
of patients getting a TNF inhibitor for an inflammatory disorder like RA or PSA or, or IBD who develop acne as a consequence of the TNF inhibitor. So on one hand, TNF inhibitors can control acne. On the other hand, TNF inhibitors cause acne. What to do? Well, continue practicing your rheumatology and don't worry about acne. Another literature review looked at uh, autoimmune disease occurring as a consequence of COVID. So this is specifically looking at new onset autoimmune and inflammatory arthritis disorders. Um, And they looked at over 2,000 articles to find only 28 reports with 28 cases, hence they're all single case reports, with sufficient evidence to say that, yeah, it looks like it probably happened. What were the 28 cases? Well, they were mostly female, average age 51. Um, 11 of the 28, or 40%, were inflammatory myositis. For those, 11 were dermatomyositis. There were also mm, four more who had antisynthetase syndrome. There were seven cases of lupus, four cases of systemic sclerosis, one overlap of MCT and lupus. The interesting thing is uh, that they met the criteria, which included an onset soon after the COVID infection. In fact, these disorders had an onset, a mean onset of 24 days after their COVID infection, making it suspicious. Um, And we've all seen autoimmune phenomenon, musculoskeletal features following either vaccination or infection with with COVID. But I put this up there to tell you the range of what's what they this report is claiming. But more importantly, it's 28 cases, you know, from the last three years with 8 billion cases of of COVID occurring. My exaggerations on number of COVID cases, of course. The point is, this is rare, 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 rare. And to think that um, COVID causes um, autoimmune diseases or that these were, I mean, I would say these numbers speak more for the random, random events than for a true association with an infectious agent. But that's my take. Uh, you notice this week that we have a lot of reports up. It's vasculitis week. We're replaying all the um, two, uh, the, the Room Now Live session on vasculitis. Great lectures by uh, uh, Drs. Dua um, and Spira and Langford. Um, a lot of tweets, a lot of videos, a Tuesday Night Rheumatology replay. One of the tweets I put up, I'll, I'm going to underscore, and that's from Rob Spira, who reviewed the effect of IL-6 inhibition on PMR, and he showed the data from the PMR, the tofacitinib, I'm sorry, the tocilizumab, SPARE trial, and another one called the SEMAPHORE trial, showing efficacy of tocilizumab in PMR. And he also showed the results of the Ceruliumab uh, Sapphire trial, which led to FDA approval of Ceruliumab just recently this year. I would expect, based on his review of the literature, that we'll see other agents being approved for PMR in the future. Um, you might want to check out his lecture on, on therapies for PMR. You can find that on, on the Room Now website, or you can find it on our YouTube channel. Um, and, uh, so associations some crazy some not so crazy uh the association between diabetes and gout 
Oh my goodness, that's not a big surprise. Um, but then again, why does it occur and what should you think about it? This is a meta-analysis of almost a half a million patients, 38 studies. Turns out that diabetes was um, seen commonly up to 20% of patients who are hyperuricemic and 17% of patients who had a diagnosis of gout, that these associations were even greater in North America. Put this up because we know that this happens. Um, but I would make a strong case for um, hyperuricemia and gout being part of the metabolic syndrome and that these you know, all run together and that uh, when you see someone with hyperuricemia or, or gout, you should be thinking about the elements, looking for hyperlipidemia, looking for hypertension, you know, obviously obesity, obviously diabetes, that this is part of your assessment and evaluation and care of someone who presents to you with gout or hyperuricemia. Another gout study uh, looked at a large German primary care database, 67,000 um, women in this database, um, and they did a matched sort of cohort study uh, and looked at the risk of having gout. So these are women with gout, all right? And what's the odds of getting breast cancer? That was shown to be significant in this population. So if you had gout, the risk of getting um, uh, breast cancer um, in gout patients was 4.5%. Um, in non-gout patients, 37 An overall 17% increase, and that was significant. But that this risk was largely seen and was significant in those only under age 50. So let's think about that. Gout women, unusual. Under age 50, even more unusual. Um, and here there's a 58% increased risk of developing breast cancer. Women over age 50 had no association with breast cancer. So what is this just p-value fishing or is this real? My, I think, interpretation is that it must be real. If you are premenopausal and you have gout and you're a woman, well, you've got to have extra factors in play that to override the usual bias seen uh, that's exerted by estrogen. So to have to overcome that, you must have um, a strong risk for gout and you know clinical expression of gout. And that strong risk, if it translates to inflammation, can drive a malignancy potential. There are other studies gone over in this paper about um, gout patients having a risk of other cancers and that that gout risk is largely seen not in elderly gout patients, but in middle-aged gout patients under age 50. So I think this is a real um, phenomenon. I wonder if you um, buy it as much as I do. A Chinese study looked at a very large lupus cohort to look for associations with osteonecrosis. If you treated lupus patients, you've certainly seen osteonecrosis and largely you assumed it was your fault because you gave them the steroids and that caused the avascular necrosis. Well, in this study of 4,000 lupus patients, the risk of osteonecrosis or AVN was 3%, 106 cases. Risk factors uh, were... Um, a lupus onset under age 30, 60% increased risk. Having arthritis with lupus, a 60% increased risk. Having organ damage with lupus, a hazard ratio 2.6. And being RNP positive, 
has a ratio of 1.7. And then, not surprisingly, a high steroid dose uh, has a ratio of 1.7. So a lot of these co-associate arthritis, organ damage, high steroids, not surprising, um, longer disease. Um, I don't get the RNP association. But nonetheless, um, you do, last thing you want to do is cause osteonecrosis because um, basically there's no treatment for it. It's miserable pain. The only solution to the problem is it's got to get worse so that you can replace the hip or the shoulder or the knee. Uh, and you don't want to do that. Um, New England Journal this week published the results of the study that was presented at ACR by Paul Emery. It was a plenary session on a PD-1 agonist called uh, Parasolimab. Uh, it was used in um, almost 100 patients with RA and shown to be effective. As you know, the checkpoint inhibitors commonly target program cell death 1 or PD-1 as a means of basically taking off the break on the immune response and allowing the immune response to forge ahead in the fight against cancer and it becomes adjunctive therapy, does it not? Um, well, this approach seems to want to reverse that. So instead of inhibiting PD-1, let's, let's stimulate PD-1 and see if we can better control um, autoimmune diseases like RA. And then it's sort of backed up by the idea that if you use a checkpoint inhibitor, commonly um, autoimmune-related uh, immune-related side effects include inflammatory arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. Anyway, in this study, it's a short study. It's an early phase two. It's only uh, 98 patients. You were randomized to either receive placebo. Oh, they gave this to people who failed either a DMARD or biologic or targeted synthetic. 41% failed a biologic or targeted synthetic going into the study. They were randomized to get either placebo for 12 weeks, 700 milligrams of parasolimab IV every four weeks, or a 300 milligram dose. Turns out only the 700 milligram dose was significant as far as the endpoint, a primary endpoint of being a significant reduction in the DASH 28 CRP at week 12. That's the last time point. It's a very short study, as I said. The interesting thing about this particular study is that only a few of the outcome measures were significant. A bunch of them were not. So the primary endpoint was significant, and that was the change in DASH 28 CRP. The ACR 20 was also significant in this study um, compared to placebo and also compared to the, the 300 milligram dose. But the ACR50 and ACR70 looked like they had a trend towards better responses with 700 milligrams, but they weren't significant. Similarly, similarly, um, what was it? Patient global assessment and hack scores were not significant. So it's kind of a mixed bag of results. I think this is, everyone thought this was really cool and a lot of talk about this, a lot of buzz about this at ACR, thinking that this could be the next new big thing. But yet, there's a downside in that for a small early phase two, it didn't hit a home run. I mean, it definitely got on base. It definitely merits a second um, phase three trial to see where this goes. I'll be interested in seeing where this goes. But nonetheless, I like the novelty of the mechanisms being employed here, and you can certainly uh, understand them. Um, a nice study from a Swedish registry looked at methotrexate, and the question is, should methotrexate be used in PSA 
like it's always used in RA. And they basically looked for real world evidence. Um, and they did like a, I don't, I can't remember the time frame, 2011, 2017, something like that. Early PSA patients um, who were started on methotrexate. Um, and when they look at them two years later, uh, and they compared the durability and responses of methotrexate in early um, PSA versus early RA. Two years later, retention on methotrexate is the same. 71% on PSA, 76% with RA. And that the majority of patients did not need to go on a second DMART. Uh, and that's like over 60%. And a majority did not need to add on a biologic. That's like 75%. Not different between the RA and the PSA patients. More or less, the real-world experience would say, even in the era when a lot of new drugs are being introduced, methotrexate still remained king in Sweden. So there's this nice study that I liked about vitamin D and its use in plaque psoriasis. thought I might have mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again because, you know, I'm kind of anti-vitamin D. I know all of you love vitamin D. It's a magical drug. It's free. It's over-the-counter. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's associated with everything. And I, I get that. I take vitamin D every day, 2,000 units. Do I measure my vitamin D? No. Why? Because I don't think it matters. I think it's an important vitamin to have for bone health and immune function. But for all the associations that vitamin D and low vitamin D has, show me that many trials where giving vitamin D fixes the problem. And the answer is you're going to strike out every time unless you're looking at bone outcomes. Now, there's some others. I know recently Michelle Petrie has talked about vitamin D and lupus being advantageous. And I'm going to believe Michelle Petrie over Jack Cush on vitamin D in lupus. But other than that, I am not. So anyway, this particular study looked at 122 active plaque psoriasis patients. They're relatively young. There's mostly men in this group, um, more so than women. Two-thirds men, one-third women. They had low vitamin Ds going in at about 15, and they each get 100,000 units of vitamin D at first dose, and then 20,000 units a week for the next four months. And at the end of four months, no difference in psoriasis severity. Now, um, they didn't choose the worst psoriasis patients. I mean, I think the mean posse score going into this was only three. And so they had mild psoriasis, but they didn't get a whole lot better, even though they corrected their vitamin D levels. So is this something I can jump on this, my soapbox and, and, uh, and win an argument about? Probably not, but I think it, uh, I like the spelling vitamin D myths. Um, if you've got a great vitamin D story, let me know. My last report I found surprising and I think kind of cool, and that is uh, Dupilumab, as you know, is a new um, IL-14, IL-13 inhibitor. It's marketed for the treatment of asthma, atopic dermatitis, um, you know, refractory nasopharyngitis, allergic rhinitis, uh, eosinophilic fasciitis, and something else that we don't treat. This particular study looked at 470 atopic dermatitis patients treated between 2018 and 21, and they identified 36 who must have had some musculoskeletal complaints, and they sent them to the rheumatologist. And ultimately, 26 were diagnosed with a musculoskeletal syndrome of inflammatory arthritis, enthesitis, or tenosynovitis, most of which was mild in 16 out of the 26, moderate in 6, and 4, it was severe. 
A few of the patients actually had enthesitis historically, but it resolved when they saw the rheumatologist three months later. Um, of the 26 patients, 11 were enthesitis only, 8 had enthesitis and arthritis, 3 had arthritis only, 2 had enthesitis and tenosynovitis. The enthesitis commonly affected the lateral epicondyles, patellar tendons, or the Achilles tendon. There were four patients who presented with what looked like sacroiliitis or inflammatory back pain. A few patients had elevated sed rates in CRP. Only one out of the 26 had a positive ANA. Um, one of the patients had guttate psoriasis. Ten patients had ophthalmologist-confirmed conjunctivitis. And this whole syndrome, or the musculoskeletal syndrome, occurred in median of 17 weeks after the onset of dupixent or dupilumab. Now, is this a drug-induced syndrome? Is this a drug that's causing a spondoarthropathy-like syndrome or, or an enthesopathy, ERA, or psoriatic arthritis-like syndrome? It's possible. It sounds like it to me. I wouldn't make too much out of the conjunctivitis. If you look at the package insert on this particular drug, there's a lot of conjunctivitis that's running around, but then again, they got all this allergic stuff going on. So who's to know what's inflammatory conjunctivitis versus allergic conjunctivitis? So again, I think this is interesting. I think you may see these patients, which is why we report it. Um, it's novel, but I'm going to add it to my list of drug-induced syndromes. Um, and time will bear this out. You know, the package insert says it's about 5% of the population treated with those indications who may get arthralgias. Less will get myalgias. There was no mention in the package insert of enthesitis or tendonitis as was depicted here. But there are a number of other reports in the literature suggesting that this does occur. Anyway, I found this cool. You know what you're going to find cool this week? Coming up next week, we're going to do a replay of, again, Room Now Live and our session on spondoarthritis, featuring fabulous talks uh, by Atul Deodar, Dennis Badubny talking about uh, sacroiliitis, and John Ravel talking about what it means to have a family history of ankylosing spondylitis. Really interesting talks. You can view those. The individual videos of their talks um, by themselves, the panel discussion with all three discussants, or the Tuesday night rheumatology you can register for, uh, and we'll take your questions at the end of that program. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week.